76% of people at the end of their life, they don't regret the things they did, they regret the things they didn't do. And so you have all these people lying on their deathbed, looking back on their whole life and thinking, holy crap, I blew it. I didn't do those things that I, I wanted. I, I lived the life for someone else, not myself. On this week's episode of the Anonymous Third Podcast, I've been Nempton, executive producer and star from the hit show, The Buried Life, that ran on MTV and is now on iTunes and Amazon. Here's the deal. Ben suffered from anxiety, depression, and found purpose in creating a bucket list of sorts with his friends, a hundred things they would do before they died. There were a few rules as they imagined nothing was too crazy. Some of those included playing basketball with President Obama, to having a beer with Prince Harry, to making a $300,000 donation to charity, and many other good ones. But the thing I loved most about their mission is that they helped a stranger do something on their list for every goal the buried life accomplished on theirs. And they help people in some incredible ways, which we get into today. We also talk about brain fitness, goal setting, and how to create your own bucket list. I even explain a framework for something new I'm trying. I cannot wait for your comments from this episode and to see your own bucket lists. Please subscribe, share with your friends, but for now, enjoy this episode. Ben, welcome to the Anonymous There podcast. Joe? So I have a loaded question for you. Mm -hmm. I know some of the story, but... I want to ensure the audience does before we get too deep into questions. And again, this is a loaded one, so it might take a while to answer. But you were a Canadian rugby national player mm -hmm. in college, and you went from the national team to having a TV show on MTV called The Buried Life. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, there was a... If those are two peaks, there was a very large valley in between those two things, uh, those two chapters in my life. So the, the short answer, which, which I guarantee will not be short, but I'll do my best, is um, I was on the U19 national rugby team in Victoria, BC, in Canada. Rugby is quite big out on the west side of Canada. Uh, we say it's the third biggest sport behind hockey and hockey, which is huge. Um, and so I... Uh, but I put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed, and, and whether that be academically or athletically. And so when I hit this kind of pinnacle of the, of the national team, I also had all this anxiety around the World Cup that we were playing in. And I played fly half, which means I kicked the field goals and I kind of called the plays, right, high pressure uh, position. And I, was, I started worrying about the, the, the field goals at the World Cup. I thought, man, what if I miss a super easy field goal right in front of the goalpost? I was, had missed a kick that was a big kick in high school at the championships, right? And that had haunted me. I thought, it can't happen again. What if, I, what if I blow it? This is my one opportunity. So I'd think about this and it would run loops in my mind at night and it would cause me to be unable to sleep. And I ultimately, as I started to not be able to sleep and I felt more anxiety, 
you know, I worried more. This was kind of this uh, downward spiral that I started to go and I fell into a depression. And I'd never been through any type of emotional road bump before. And this was like a devastating depression. I dropped out of school. I got dropped from the national rugby team because I just didn't go anymore. Uh, I couldn't go. I had the crippling anxiety. I was, I was, I couldn't make a decision. So my, that was ultimately be my decision was indecision, right? So I didn't go to school. I didn't go to rugby practice. Ultimately means I dropped out or I got cut. I became a shut-in in my parents' house. I was really crippled by this depression and it lasted many months. And it wasn't until I through a series of events realized that one of the things I needed to do was talk about what I was going through. So I started talking about uh, my, my struggles with friends and ultimately to a therapist. I, I, I ultimately decided that the people I surrounded myself really impacted my mood and my emotional state. So I thought I'm gonna try and only surround myself with people that inspired me. And that decision ultimately changed my life. That was the spark that ultimately lit the fire, which was gonna be the television show. So that decision of deciding to surround myself with people that inspire me caused me to reach out to, he wasn't even a friend at the time, but a kid from my neighborhood who made uh, movies in the neighborhood. His name was Johnny. And I said, Johnny, let's, ma let's make a movie. I've always wanted to make a movie. You make movies. And I, uh, we, we gathered two other friends and we, we all decided we we're gonna make a documentary film. And we didn't know what the film was gonna be about, but this is what started this of the bucket list and ultimately led to the book, the TV show and all the experiences. So it was uh, this decision to surround myself with people that inspired me and, um, and ultimately, you know, the whole thing went from there. So when you say people that inspired you, how did that, how did that occur? So I'm, I'm sitting here in a rut. Yeah. Whatever I'm doing. Mm -hmm. did, did you go seek out folks that, that you read about? Did you just, was it just happenstance? You ran into people that you looked up to? So it was, I was looking for a feeling that I got when I was with people. This like, I wanted people that gave me energy versus drew energy from me. So that was sort of one, uh, I would say the one equation that I used, but also I looked for friends that were doing really, really cool things. So one of my friends started a clothing line and it was out of nowhere. I was so uh, excited by the idea of him just doing this without any experience in fashion. And so I, I reached out to him. I was like, hey, can I get involved? And I, I helped him get some press on different blogs just by cold emailing different blogs. And then I realized, wow, if I did that and you know, I was able to get him on these blogs, I wonder what else I could do. And if he started a clothing line, what do I wanna do? And that's when I thought I wanna make a, a documentary. I want to make a, a movie. And so it was leaning into relationships or even if they weren't relationships, like reaching out to people that were doing things that I thought was inspiring and trying to, to get involved with those. It was leaning into friendships that were energizing, you know, people that were thinking big, people that believed in just dreams in general, you know, believed in my dreams, believed in their dreams. And I, my, my, ele, my, my thought was elevated or my what level of thinking was elevated just from being around them. You know, if they did something really, really incredible, I thought, wow, that's amazing. I wonder what I can do, you know, because I knew that I was no different than them. They were my friend. Whereas when you see someone that you don't know do something 
incredible. You think, wow, that's incredible. Uh, I could never do that. Because you, you put them up on this pedestal, you think that they are more accomplished or they're smarter. Or, you know, you look at people and you think, um, well, they did that because they're, they're greater than me. And, and so I found that when my friends did the great things, it, was, uh, it, it fired me up. And so, you know, the four of us thought, okay, we all were searching for something and we didn't really know what it was, but we felt that we weren't doing the things that we really wanted to do. You know, we felt buried by the day to day. And so we decided to, um, and it was actually ironic, my friend Johnny was sitting in English class at McGill University and he got assigned a poem called The Buried Life. And it was a, it's a 150-year-old poem written by a guy in, in England, Matthew Arnold, in 1852. A guy in his 50s and he's articulating the same feeling that the four of us were feeling, but we couldn't articulate which was that we had all these things that we wanted to do, but we hadn't done them because they were buried. And we have moments when we're inspired, but then that gets buried by the day to day. And we thought, wow, this clearly is, we're not the first people to ever feel like this. This guy wrote about it 150 years ago. Let's call this movie The Buried Life, even though we don't know what it's gonna be about. And we thought, okay, if, if, if we're buried, how do we unbury our dreams? And we came up with this question, what do you wanna do before you die? And we thought, if we think about death, it's going to make us think about life, right? If we digest the fact that we're going to die one day, that our time is limited, what do we want to do with the time we have left? And our answers to that question ended up being the bucket list because we had all these things that we wanted to do. And we thought, well, why don't we just do all these things? And so we, we wrote this bucket list together and we had two rules. We had to, we pretended we had $10 million in our bank account. We, we pretended that we could do anything when we wrote the list collectively. So this list was outrageous. It was the most absurd dreams we could think of. <laughs> Go to space, make a TV show, pay off our parents' mortgage, sit with Oprah, have a beer with Prince Harry, you know, uh, all of these truly audacious uh, dreams. And we thought, yeah, let's go after them. Let's, let's go and do as many as we can. And we'll also help other people accomplish their dreams. And we will go on a road trip, go after our list, help other people, and we'll do it no matter what. Even if we have to bike or walk, we're still going to do this trip. At the, and this was in 2006. And it was, we thought we'd take two weeks off our summer jobs. We fundraised to raise money. We cold called companies, pretending we had a production company. We built a website by hand. We bought a camera on eBay. You know, we begged, bore, and stole to get this road trip together. And... We thought we're going to hit the road for two weeks. We're going to go after our list. We're going to help other people. And that is going to be a great adventure and a great documentary that we can show our friends. And so we hit the road. We had this 1977 beat up RV. We uh, made matching t-shirts that we had four of them that said the Barry Life. We just wore them the whole time. <laughs> and, uh, and when we hit the road unexpectedly, people started to reach out to us through our website. They heard about us somehow and they sent us emails. Hey, I can help you cross off number nine, ride a bull. I can help you uh, make a toast to strangers' wedding. My buddy's getting married. I'm the best man. I can sneak you in. And then people started sending us dreams that they at were looking for uh, help with, right? And all of a sudden, people from around the world started sending us their dreams. I want to fly a fighter jet. I want to play at Augusta. Can you guys help? I want to sing a duet with, my, with Beyonce. And this two-week road trip was hit a chord 
And all of a sudden it was national news and we were getting inundated by all of these dreams. And we were starting to cross off list times we never thought we could. And we came back after the two week road trip and we thought, whoa, what happened? We got to keep doing this. I was starting to feel a sense of purpose. We thought we got to go bigger next summer. And so we went back to school, fundraised more, upgraded our 1977 uh, Dodge Coachman to a 1966 purple transit bus that we bought off a nudist in Vancouver. (laughs) And we just put all the list items on the side of the bus, put four bunks in the back. And in 2007, we went out again for two months. This time we had a full film crew with us. This time we went after bigger list items and we continued to go after our list and, and really help more people accomplish their dreams through the help of other people. So we're realizing like, wow, you can really help a lot of people when you act as this facilitator of, you know, connecting dreams with people that can, that are, are, are open to helping, which we, we found to be more than you, than you would expect. And so, so ultimately this two week road trip ended up lasting over 10 years <laughs> and the list items that I originally and wrote down that I was convinced were impossible. Make a TV show, sit with Oprah, have a beer with Prince Harry, play basketball with President Obama. They ended up falling off the list. And we also learned that these big gives that we were doing were, you know, helping other people achieve their their goals were, you know, resonating in even a deeper way than those large list items. And uh, and so it, it's it ultimately led us down to LA uh, where after two years of doing trips, because on the list is make a TV show, you know, we were able to sell the show as executive producers so that we could make it ourselves because we were really, it was really important to us that we created it and that our, you know, friends would think it was really inspiring um, and threw ourselves into that machine and, and, and ultimately made a show that I think we all were really proud of. And so that's, that's what led us down to the show. So from, Rugby, you know, national rugby to the depths of a depression to the television show in LA. And that was about uh, four, four or five years, that process, that, that whole journey. And what year did the journey start? 2006. So one of the questions I had in, in knowing your story was, did it surprise you how you got through your depression by helping others? Like how much more important mm. was that than mm-hmm. fulfilling your own goals? It's a great question. And um, Dale Carnegie, you know, the prolific author, he, he, he talks about, you know, if you feel depressed, uh, one of his suggestions is do 14 days of acts of service. So do an act of service every day. And uh, so what happens when you help someone else and let's say you feel depressed or you, even if you just feel like you're not yourself, you know, whatever, your brain doesn't have the ability to think about two things at once. So you can't think about how poorly you feel and think about someone else at the same time. So you take yourself out of your own head and you make a connection with someone else, which builds a sense of well-being, a meaningful human connection. So you stop thinking about how crappy you feel and you start to build a meaningful connection and relationship with someone with, which also builds your well-being. So, so both of those things make you feel better. So it's, 
there's no golden arrow for depression in my experience, but I think that it really does help to help other people. I think it also helps to be doing things that you love, right? I mean, that's intuitive. You, you're, you're, you're fulfilling and, and doing this thing that you love and that brings you a sense of well-being. It's important to talk about it. That might be the most important, right, is to talk about it ideally to a therapist or someone that, you, that cares about you hugely important because, you know, think about when you try and solve a problem, right? When you, in your day to day, if you hit a roadblock, what do you do? Well, you probably, you reach out to someone for advice. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm going through this problem right now. Uh, have you ever been through it? Can you, can you give me any advice? You go to a mentor or you go to a colleague or you, um, you collaborate, but when you're on your own, it's just, it's more difficult. So that's what you're doing when you're, when you're trying to like, go through this, this emotional problem in, in, your, in your head. You have a higher chance, I think, of success when you talk about it. Because not only are you able to break it down when you speak it, you realize that, oh, it's, it's actually a little scarier inside my head. When you speak it, it's a little less charged. But you also give someone else the opportunity to help you with that problem, which just increases your odds of, of, of success. So, you know, the, I have this like resilience toolkit that I like to think about this, like everyone should have their toolkit of, of habits that increase their well-being. Um, and so, you know, as I said, purpose, your bucket list is one of them. Talking about it is another, like with connection, um, helping others, getting out in nature really helps just being, it's called forest bathing in Japan. They actually, Japanese doctors prescribe it, you know, so you just get out in nature for 20 minutes, you, you start to feel happier. Uh, and uh, you know, among, among other things like exercise and sleep and, um, you know, a couple of things. So yeah, I, I, I long way of saying it, I, I think it's important, you know, helping others. There's such a stigma regarding mental health. And I, I know one of the things that you talk about is, is brain fitness is changing the, the narrative a bit from mental health as, as, as if it's a, a bad thing to brain fitness. And when you think about other aspects of your life and the brain being an organ, we spend a lot of time on the physical side. We spend a lot of time on the, um, you know, learning all of these things. But when it comes to depression, it's just this odd topic in some, in some cases, but, yeah. but I think what, what you've done a good job of is, is helping people understand that it's okay. We're human beings. We all have issues and we're in good company when you look at the other athletes or quote unquote famous people that have very similar issues. They're, we're all human. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I, how did you, how did that click for the first time for you when you were like, you know, this mental health isn't the right verbiage to use. We really should be changing the narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, it took, it took me some time to be first and, you know, firstly, uh, to, to be able to talk about it publicly, you know, because I felt so much uh, shame and, and there was, there is so much stigma. And so I thought it was a weakness, you know, and, but uh, I started learning about the rate of suicide and in the country, and it's, it's overwhelming how many people are struggling and, and, and ultimately take their own life. And I thought, well, you know, if I can tell my story and, and veer someone, just give someone a different perspective or at least have someone see, hey, I'm not alone in, in this because I had seen people like Michael Phelps, as you said, talk about his 
struggles with depression and think, wow, the greatest, one of the greatest athletes of all time is, has the, is struggling with the same thing that I struggle with. Like that kind of makes it a little bit more okay, you know? And so it decharges it. And so for me, I, I thought, well, I, maybe I can use this as a tool to help, to help people. And, and I, it was, I was, it was, I was scared when I first spoke about it on stage and like really freaked out. My hands were shaking. Um, but over time I got less and less scared and, um, and I saw that it was in, impacting people. And I thought now I'm ex- excited to talk about it. Cause now it's a tool that I can use to, to help other people. And I think that a lot of it is, is wrapped up in the stigma language, as you said. And when you think about a broken ankle, you can see a broken ankle. You can empathize with it, with that. You know, you can see someone hobbling, you think, Oh, they're hurt. You just can't see uh, a, a mental health, some mental health um, struggles. And so, you know, it's hard to empathize if you haven't been through it. And, uh, but when you start to think about it as just a part of the body that, that can uh, malfunction like any other part of the body, then, you know, you think about your brain just as a, another piece of your, the, your entire being, um, you know, it feels like a little bit less obscure. And so I think the language is, is important that to, to, to change. I think talking about it really helps just by opening up the, this, the space for other people to talk about it. And, you know, everyone can have that effect, you know, you don't have to be Michael Phelps to, um, destigmatize, uh, the conversation, you know, you can, you can talk with your friends about what you've been going through when you feel comfortable, you know, and that will open up the door for them to come back to you in their eventual time of need. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, you also start to think about brain fitness as more of a proactive thing that you might want to do to increase your well-being. Even if you don't struggle with depression, you know, we all have mental health. You know, that's just the reality. So we all are going to have down days and to be human is to struggle. So as soon as we all can understand that, okay, it's okay to, to have a dip. It's, it's, it's going to happen. It's just the human experience. Um, you know, that kind of just normalizes everyone and, and, it, and it makes it, gives us a place to be like, okay, what can, can I do to, to mitigate that? And, and what, how can I find things that I know are going to be good for me so that when I do hit that crisis, because it will happen, whether it's perhaps bereavement, you know, if someone passes or stress or divorce or something, you know, you're going to hit that. So let's have an arsenal of tools in our toolbox that we can access to know, okay, I'm starting to feel stressed. Um, I know these things are good for me. I'm going to start to make sure that I consciously employ these things and do these things to make myself feel a little better. When I'm training for something or I'm speaking to a large audience, you know, you have this adrenaline and you're all, you're, you get excited and pumped up for lack of better words. And when you get off that stage and that experience ends, assuming, you know, it went well, you, you feel, a, at least myself, a sense of depression, almost like you just had this high, right? And that could be that could be uh, equated to a sugar high or a drug high or whatever that is. You have a high and you come off of it. So in some cases, it doesn't even have to be like something negative happening. It could be you mm-hmm. went from a 
a high to uh, to a low. I was wondering because the book that you wrote and the series was a defined list of a hundred things, right? Mm-hmm. So once that was over, did you fall back into any sort of depression because you came off that high? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a great question. And, and I definitely have experienced that before. The good thing about what I've learned about the list is that really your list should evolve with you as you evolve. So we had incredibly audacious and crazy list items in our early 20s. Uh, now, I don't really want to do those things anymore, <laughs> you know? but I'm happy that I did. But now my list is very different. Now my list uh, you know, is things like renovate m- my first house you know, or you know, spend more time with people that I really care about, adopt a dog. You know, things that may, from the outside, be like, oh, those seem a little more mundane, but it doesn't matter. No list item is greater or less great than any other because the only thing that's important about a list is that it's important to you, right? That it's going to bring you joy and happiness and fulfillment. Your bucket list is a reflection of those things that are important to you. So as you grow and evolve, your list will also grow and evolve. So it's important to revisit it and update it so that it stays current, right? So my list... There's the original 100, which we've crossed off 91 of, but I've also added hundreds more that now kind of reflect more of who I am. So it sort of was this evolution. Um, but I think that, you know, if you, if, you're, if you think more about a list as that holistic reflection of who you are, then you move away from the traditional idea of a bucket list, which is probably like adventure and travel, right? Skydive, travel Europe, you know, those types of things which are, is actually only one category of your life. And there's at least 10 categories of your life that can be reflected on a list, on your list. So there's adventure travel, there's uh, intellectual, as you said, like what do you want to learn? There's spiritual, emotional, professional. What are your professional goals? Uh, what are your um, material goals? It's okay to have goals, uh, things that you just want to buy, right? That, what are your goals of service? How do you want to give back? So anything that's going to bring you that joy is what should be, in my opinion, reflected on your list. And that changes over time. So you keep your list in a journal, hopefully, that you can revisit every couple months and update. And, uh, And you write it down because it's important to take those thoughts and make them real. Because you, the problem that we have with personal goals is that there's no accountability. And we have, a, we have deadlines for all these other sets, goal sets in our lives. But with our personal goals, there's no deadlines. So, we, so something always pops up that's more important. And we push it. And we say, I'll do it next week. I'll do it next year. And the reality is, is that 76% of people at the end of their life, they don't regret the things they did. They regret the things they didn't do. And so you have all these people lying on their deathbed, looking back on their whole life and thinking, holy crap, I blew it. I didn't do those things that I, I want. I, I lived the life for someone else, not myself. So this is from a psychologist who did a bunch of research named Tom Gilvich, who's a professor at Cornell. He wrote a paper called The Ideal Road Not Taken. And he found that 76% of people, you know, they realized that uh, 
their single biggest regret is living someone else's life. So that is a huge majority of the population. We need more people in that minority of the 24%. And I think a bucket list is a great start because you start to build a bit of accountability by writing it down. Also want to share those goals with other people so you build more accountability. You want an accountability buddy to check in on them with you down the line, right? So you're 77% more likely if you to achieve those goals if you have someone checking in on you down the line. And you want to put it in your calendar to create accountability. You, whatever you can <laughs> to create accountability. You know, write a bucket list with your family, write it with your partner. And because it's so easy to get buried by the day-to-day. It's just, it's, it's, it's so ingrained in who we are that the poem, The Buried Life, was written in 1852. This is one thing we know. The day-to-day has a way of, of burying those personal goals that we have. And so we need to write them down. We need to share them. And we need to start creating inspiration by taking action. We don't want to wait to feel inspired to go after our bucket list. We want to start taking steps because that will build inspiration. So, you know, I have this idea that we're the architects of our own inspiration. I don't even know if it's my idea, but I will say it's mine. You know, so that we... It's your idea now, Ben. Yes. So that we can build our own inspiration blindly. We don't need to know how we're going to achieve the goal. That's the trick. We just need to take the first step and then figure out what the next step is. And we'll start to build inspiration as, as, we, as we move. So that, you know, definitely is what we found is that like, I have had no idea how we're going to accomplish these big goals. No clue. I didn't actually think we were going to, but we thought, okay, let's just start marching forward and started to build momentum, you know, and then we figured out the next thing and the next thing. And that's how these that larger list signs ultimately happened. So, you know, you write your list, you share it, and you start taking action to build your own inspiration. So one of the things that I I did recently, I have all these personal goals and a lot of them are related to fitness or nutrition or not drinking, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I I follow those, but what I realized is, and it, you did this so beautifully in terms of uh, giving back to others, and that could be in the form of a public compliment or just sharing something with someone else and making their life better, which I want to get into in a few minutes. Uh, one of your stories that really struck me is the bionic arm, but um, or hand. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the things that I I did recently is I went out town with my wife and I said, let's create 30 things we want to do in the next three years. And 10 of them need to be just about you. And this is a framework I took from Oprah. Uh, mm-hmm. coincidentally, a long time ago when she was like, when you think about yourself and you think about your goals, one third should be about you. One third mm-hmm. should be about you and your wife and one third should be about others. And I was mm-hmm. like, and that kind of came back to me because when, when I had been focusing on just myself, I felt like something was missing. Mm. It felt selfish to me. So, so now we, we mapped out the next three years and, um, and, we have 10 goals together as a family. She has 10 personal goals. I have 10 personal goals and we have 10 goals together. I thought that was, it's a great start to a framework. But what that does, Ben, that I found is when you're doing the everyday things, they have a different meaning. So mm-hmm. if I am working out and I'm working out with my wife, we're working out to achieve running a Spartan race at the end of this year. 
Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If we're going towards a journey, if we're taking skiing lessons, it's because we want to ski as a family in in the Swiss Alps in three years from now. So I found that very much more inspirational than just being about me. And I know that that's the core of you and that's the core of your book. And that's why I asked those questions earlier of how much more important it was to give back to others. So going back to my question that I was going to ask, I'm sure you have a ton of stories. I'd love to hear two because I know the bionic hand one. Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to share that one, but I'd also love for you to share another one possibly of, of uh, someone that was affected because of the gift that you and your friends gave them. Mm -hmm. By the way, I love the 30, you know, the 10, 10, 10 and the goals for yourself, the, your partner and giving back. And I think that's a, that's such a great framework, you know? And so what you're effectively doing is you're looking at a couple different categories of your life there. Um, You know, you, and then your relationship, which actually I think relationships is another category, whether it's friendships or your love or, you know, because you need your relationship needs attention. You know, you got to focus on it just like you would yourself. Um, as you know, and so, and then also giving back. Um, okay. So yeah, to answer your question, I mean, the, so the, the, the bionic hand story came to us over via Twitter where a friend of us sent us a hashtag that it just said hand for Tori. When we clicked on it and looked into it, it was a group of friends that started a hashtag for their friend Tori, who was born with one hand and Tori's biggest dream is just to have a bionic hand. And it was, um, you know, bionic hands are expensive and, and this, the process to get them takes a long time and, and the physical therapy is, is also extensive and, and expensive. And our friends were like, we know this is her dream. Maybe we can just like band together, create awareness and see if we can make this happen. And so uh, we contacted this company called Hanger Clinics, which is one of the best uh, leaders in, in, in building prosthetics and robotics. We told them Tori's story and they said, this is, we'd love to help out. And, and, and so they said, we're going to donate a bionic hand. And so we thought, okay, we, we now want to surprise Tori with this hand. And we were speaking at a, uh, a conference and we were able to convinced Tori that she had won a free trip to this conference. Uh, we got her friends on board and we, she came out to LA for the first time. And while, and, and if you watch the video, you can see, because you might think, well, Tori walks onto the stage and it's like, how did they, she get onto the stage? Well, we had sort of made up this, uh, this, uh, this thing that she had won a trip and we sort of got her up on stage to talk about, you know, what was it like to come to this conference? And of course we were going to surprise her with this arm. And we said, listen, Tori, I, hate, I, I, I feel a little bit bad, but we, we actually brought you here for a different reason. And we told her that your friends had, had, had banded together and we got our attention and we were able to tell her story to hangar clinics and they donated her a bionic hand. And she uh, started to cry on, and hugged us all. And, uh, the coolest part was going back with her to Ohio to hang her clinics to actually get the arm fitted and ultimately use it for the first time. And so I was able to be there when she and her friends were there. We were all there together to see her move the hand for the first time. And so she was 
able to do things that she'd never done before, like curl her hair, tie her shoe. She tied her shoe for the first time, like right after she started to learn how to use the hand. I couldn't like, believe how quickly she was able to use the hand and do things, you know, in, like complex movements like that. And so what was, what was, what was really awesome was to see her dad who, you know, talked about how he was always worried about her and, and he thought, well, she get bullied in school and, you know, and the irony is she had an amazing group of friends. And, and, and the, the other thing that was super inspiring is having one hand did not stop her from doing anything. You know, she played basketball. She had this really rich, uh, these rich friendships and, uh, and, and this is, was just something that she wanted to enrich her life, be able to do things that she hadn't done, but she didn't need it. And so like, that was really inspiring to see that, you know, and so it was amazing to watch her friends and her dad, you know, see that, see Tori go through this. And, uh, what was cool about it was she decided to study social work at, at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, um, because she wanted to work in the homeless shelter in her small town. And because of the experience with the arm, it made her want to pay that forward. And so this idea started to bubble up for me, which is around the ripple effect of, which is that when you help someone, the reason why it's so impactful, one of the reasons is that it creates this positive ripple that you can't see. So it affects their friends. It affects their family, right? I saw it affect her dad. I saw it affect her uh, friends. I, I saw... And then it affects, could affect every person that they come in contact with moving forward, you know? So now she's working in this homeless shelter and affecting other people. I won't know the impact, but it's, it's, it's very real. So we all have the ability to create the ripple effect through positive actions. They don't need to be big actions like giving someone a bionic hand. As you said, it could be a smile to a stranger. It could be a random act of kindness. It could be, you know, you think about the impact we have in our team as at work, you know, a compliment, you know, supporting someone creates a ripple internally. You may not know the full extent of that ripple, um, but every action has a reaction. So those reactions can be positive or negative. And you start to think about quantifying that impact. It's, it's very, uh, it gives me chills thinking about it because you, that means that, one person can create an exponential impact. And you see it all the time on social media. You see like one act that just starts to go viral and create this ripple around the world. And you start to look at what creates movements, you know, and it's, it's actions. It's one simple action that begets another action that, you know, so this, I think this idea is very inspiring because especially today when it feels like sometimes there's, so much negativity and the news is overwhelming. You're like, what am, who am I as one person? How can I make an impact? Well, you can make an impact because of the ripple effect. And that's the proof. So that was an extremely powerful revelation. And I think that it's um, something that everyone can, t can, can, can sort, of, you, sort of implement in their day-to-day -day just by knowing that, okay, I may not be able to see what the reaction is, from this action, but I know that it's going to create this, this ripple and I'm just going to continue to do it. You know, and I have a friend of mine whose, whose goal, his life's goal is to, is to make one person's day better uh, than it was before they ran into him or before they met him or before they saw him. Right. So every day that's all. And that simple goal, I can't tell you how 
I can just tell by the way he lives that, that it's changed so many people's lives. And uh, so, you know, the, the, the ripple effect can, can be a powerful, powerful tool, tool. So what's another quick example outside the, the bio yeah, another, can? Another one is uh, we, we met, we were in DC trying to play basketball with President Obama. We saw, uh, we were asking people out at, at the monuments, you know, what do you want to do before you die? <laughs> Which is a direct question, but that's just the way we you know, ask people. And uh, these, these two guys in their 60s said, well, actually, we're doing it right now. We're, this is one of the things on our bucket list, visit the monuments. We haven't seen each other in 30 years, but we were friends growing up and we, we, wanna, we wanted to do this and we're doing it. And we thought, wow, that's amazing. Like, what, what's another thing? And they said, well, I guess it might be reconnecting with our two other friends that we haven't seen in actually longer. See, the four of us, when we were you know, ages eight to 13, every summer, we'd, go, we, we'd come together in the summer and go to this, um, we call it a watering hole, but it was uh, this body of water and we'd spend the summer there and we haven't seen them since we were 13. So we contacted the two guys that were in their 60s, said, we ran into your friends. We want to surprise them. We got everyone together. We surprised the two old friends with their other friends at the actual place that they, you grew up going to swim, swim in. And uh, right away, after not seeing each other for 40 years, they were back to being best friends. Jumped in the water. We all had a barbecue together. And, uh, you know, they, they all said, like, I wish I, wish I would have not let so much time pass. You know, I wish I would have not let... I wish I would have reached out earlier. And uh, three years later, sadly, one of, the, one of the guys passed away from cancer. And he wrote me an email and he said, I'm so glad that, that we all reconnected because they had then stayed in touch. And every, you know, six months or 12 months, they would get together again. And uh, you look at the top five regrets of the dying. You know, the one I mentioned, living a life someone else wanted for me you know, or not living my true self. One of the other ones is I wish I would have stayed connected with old friends. So I thought about these four guys are like us four, you know, in 40 years. And, uh, and just kind of was, uh, was impactful for, for, for me. So that's a great segue into a question that keeps coming up. I try and answer for people, but I feel like I'm not doing a great job. Not enough time. I don't have enough time in my day. Mm -hmm. um, I'm too busy. People will maybe listen to this, start something, and then their day gets away from them, and then they feel discouraged. You get buried. So I was wondering if you had advice for those folks. I, it's the, this is the human experience. <laughs> it's uh, yes, that we all do not have enough enough time, and, and we do get buried by the day to day. Uh, I'm not uh, gonna say that I don't get buried because I do all the time. To you know, so what 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 can you do to carve out time, uh, or how can you prioritize those things? Well, a couple things to think about. One, identify what's important first and foremost, so that you can spend your time wisely. So that's why you take time alone. You think about these things, you write them down. Okay, now you know these are the things that are important to you. 
how can you create that accountability around those things? How can you prioritize those things? Just like you would prioritize a really important meeting at work, right? If you have a board meeting or if you have uh, an investor meeting, you know, you're not missing that. So how can you be vigilant with protecting time for these other things in your life that are truly important that will affect your performance at work, right? If you think about work-life harmony, you need to do these things that you love for your performance and your, uh, you know, it's personal betterment to improve your performance at work. So, you know, you, you also got to give yourself permission to do it. I think there's a lot of guilt that comes around either taking time off or taking time to do certain things that um, you could be doing work. You got to know that these, these are going to fuel you at work. So that might be a piece of it, removing the guilt. But then it's, it's, it's saying, okay, maybe you need to put it in your calendar and you just, and maybe you say, listen, at 6 PM on Thursdays, I'm playing racquetball with my, uh, with my friends because it's, I, I love it. And, uh, and nothing is going to get in that way at that time, you know, so it's in your calendar. You make sure maybe it's, um, doing so, like you said, you made your list with, uh, with your wife. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's, it's starting to get an accountability buddy so that you can prioritize it. Uh, maybe it's doing it first thing when you wake up. So the day doesn't get away with you, you know, maybe there's, there's time when you wake up and you say, this is, this is what I'm going to do every, every morning exercise, you know, read, meditate, play the act, do the activity. What's like the, the, the art, the creative uh, expression that you have that you want to do so that it, you know that like, if you put it later in the day, it's just going to get pushed and pushed. So there's no, again, there's no golden arrow, but it's, if you can create accountability, that will increase your chances of actually doing those things and not creating them pushed. If you can give yourself permission to do those things and know that they are going to fuel your performance, that's also important. So you don't feel guilty. Um, and if you can just start to remove any fear that you have around going after those things, like the fear of what other people think or the fear of failure, that will also help. And that's some great advice. I have a few speed questions because yep. I know we got to wrap up in a second here or in a, in a few minutes, hopefully. Uh, so answer these, uh, I'm not going to time you. Yeah. Quick answers though. Favorite book. Or a book that has inspired you recently? Um, I really love uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie. He, that's because that was yeah. like the first self-help book that I ever read. And it, I just love the way he writes. Also, there's a, he has a, another book that's like about stop worrying and start living your life, which I think is also mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, so, and I'm also reading uh, The Overstory right now, which is an amazing, uh, amazing book. Who inspires you? I, you know, I've, I've tried to continue to surround myself with people that inspire me. And so a lot of my friends inspire me, you know, they're just doing incredible things and it continually, uh, charges me up. You know, I see them do these things and I think, wow, <laughs> I need to start, I need to start moving, you know? And so it's, it's, it still is inspiring to, to see my friends do these things. What was your, what was the hardest thing on this list that you, uh, you accomplished? perhaps survive on a deserted island. <laughs> we lived off coconuts and crabs and slept on the beach and had to build a raft. And, you know, we were in the Cook Islands. We had no idea where we were. We just got dropped off blindfolded and left. So 
that was uh, now, you know, when I'm uncomfortable, you know, sleeping somewhere, I think, well, at least I'm not on that island. <laughs> if someone feels stuck, what, what's a sentence that they can think about to get them through? Like if you're trying to reach, reach Prince Harry and have a beer with them and it's taken you X amount of time mm -hmm. and you want to give mm -hmm. up, what do you say to yourself? Um, I try not up. to look at how, how far I need to go. I look at how far I've come. So instead of looking forward, I look back and think, wow, like, all right, yeah, it sucks and I'm having troubles, but like, I've made it. Look how far I've come. What's your favorite unimportant thing to do now? Tennis. <laughs> That's nice. pretty important. Yeah, do, you still, do you still play rugby at all? No, not much. It's a little too tough on the body. <laughs> That's like tennis. Yeah. I it's like the imagine. opposite of rugby. So how can people get a hold of you and find out more, Ben? Yeah, you can uh, message me on Instagram. My handle is at Ben Nempton. That's probably the, the best. Our all social handles are just my, my full name. Uh, you can also email me at b at bennempton.com. You know, all that stuff is on my website. Great. And we'll link to that in the show notes. I really appreciate you spending the time with me today and the audience. There's just so many good nuggets of information here. And you're, you're an amazing human being. And the fact that you uh, created this list, but you made half of it about giving back to others is just so inspirational. It's a pleasure to meet you. And thanks for everything you're doing for humanity. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Hopefully we get to meet in person one day. I, I, really, uh, I really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. And uh, enjoy. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode. Huge shout out to Ben Nempton. You're an amazing individual. Thank you for spending the time today with us. I'd like to also thank Nick Statina, who is my audio engineer and really helped out with this episode. There were some challenges. I don't really know why there was, but there was. And I think it turned out pretty well in terms of the audio. Thank you, Nick. You're a very talented individual. I got a ton out of this episode, guys, and I can't wait to share my list with you, the one-third, the one-third, and the one-third. For me, personally, what I'm going after, me and my partner, which happens to be my wife, and me and others, my friends, my family, what we're going to accomplish together. I can tell you this, going after your goals creates stories in dots, dots that you can connect when you look backwards on them, you cannot connect dots going forward. Typically you can't, but you can always connect them going backwards and you will learn so much from doing and creating. So go get off social media. You know what to do. Just start doing it. I hope you have a great week and I look forward to sharing with you an amazing episode next week. Until then, remember you, me, we are not almost there.